Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. The free market can no longer guarantee the survival of high-quality journalism. I read that on the Walrus Magazine's website the other week, in an article about the Walrus, in which it was argued that the ad-supported newspaper model is basically finished. But quality content will still be published if readers choose to directly support it. Not through paywalls, but voluntarily, through charitable donations. That idea isn't new. It's actually the founding concept of The Walrus. Back in 2003, the two guys who started The Walrus magazine did so based on the idea that the only way for Canada to have something as excellent as The New Yorker or Harper's magazine, to have an intellectual literary magazine of that caliber, the only way we could get something like that is if that magazine functioned as a charity, not as a business. Of course, lots of media organizations, including Canada Land, get voluntary financial support from their audience. But few are actually registered charities. Charitable status is a sweet deal for donors because the money that they donate is tax deductible. And it is a very sweet deal for charities because all the money they make from donations and otherwise 
is totally tax exempt. Charities don't pay taxes. So yeah, it is very good to be a charity. And therefore, it's very hard to get to be a charity. To get charitable status, you have to promise the government that you will do very good things. Well, the walrus has not always done such great things. In 2014, the Ontario Ministry of Labour fined the walrus when they discovered that the walrus was running an unpaid and therefore illegal internship program since abolished. And then last October, we reported on a bunch of serious problems at the Walrus Magazine. We spoke to 19 current and former employees, and we told you about a chaotic workplace in a state of crisis, a crisis described by Walrus publisher Shelley Ambrose herself as a meltdown. We told you about allegations of workplace bullying and verbal abuse, uh, an accusation of editorial theft, which they later apologized for, a rash of exits from the magazine by senior editors and others, controversial firings, and a widely felt toxic work environment that was known to management who ignored it. Well, it did not end there. In the aftermath of our coverage, the chair of the Walrus Foundation resigned, their director of philanthropy quit, and one editor, somebody who no one said a bad word about when we were researching the Walrus, was fired. And now, something new has come up. We got an email from Ken Alexander. Ken is one of the aforementioned founders of the Walrus magazine. He was also the Walrus's publisher and editor for a time. He actually put up the seed money out of his own pocket to get the whole thing off the ground. He then wrangled with the government for years to get that registered charity status from the government. And once he got it for the Walrus, it was Ken Alexander's parents' foundation, the Chalkers Foundation, that donated $5 million to keep the whole thing running. But now, Ken Alexander has come forward to say that the Walrus may have broken its original deal with the government and did not do the charitable things it was supposed to do. He has provided us with a copy of government documents from the Canadian Revenue Agency, which spell out in detail all of the Walrus Foundation's original obligations. You can read that on our website. Now, we of course asked the Walrus for their side of this. We asked publisher Shelley Ambrose, and we asked the Walrus Foundation, have their terms with the government changed? Are Ken's other claims, which you're going to hear about today, accurate? They didn't respond. If and when they do, we will tell you what they have to say. But for now, we have Ken Alexander. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Eric Steves, Justin Langil, Jennifer Clary, Stephanie Nohouse, Krishna Mercer, Robert Wheaton, Sherry Monsell, Aaron Johnston, and Deirdre Domegan. Deirdre, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I like the fact that you challenge traditional media and give a platform to voices that we might not hear elsewhere. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems... And just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is also brought to you by Giftogram. People, Valentine's Day is upon us. It is coming. Do not sleep on this. You need to get something for someone. Why not use Giftogram? It just makes the whole thing easy. This, this decision that you're putting off, that you're going to scramble and, and do poorly at the last minute, they have been working on it for some time. Giftogram has excellent gifts, and they've made it so easy to give them. You download the app to your Android or iOS device. You pick the gift you want to send from a highly curated and tasteful and cool list of gifts. And then you just pick the person from your contact list who you want to give the gift to, and you're done. You're done. Perhaps there is somebody you would like to buy a visit to a salon for or a box of macarons or a cashmere wrap or just keep it simple and buy flowers. I mean, I had a weird block about flowers for a while. It was almost like something from a cartoon. I didn't know if anyone actually wanted flowers. It turns out that people do really like getting flowers. I suppose this is obvious to everyone else. I looked at gifts on Giftogram that I wouldn't mind receiving. There is a six-month vinyl record subscription. There are simple little things. There is this little folding pocket knife for $27. And if you go to Giftogram now and use the offer code CanadaLand, they will give you $20 towards your first gift. So that $27 pocket knife, which is a very handsome pocket knife, is 7 bucks. There are gifts on Giftogram for $22, so that's like a $2 gift. There's just no reason for you not to do this right now. Download Giftogram and use the offer code Canada land. Ken, how were you able to get the government to classify the walrus as a charity? It was not easy. We finally got charitable status and we had to, in a sense, prove that we were qualitatively different than any other publication in Canada in order to demonstrate its educational value. Uh -huh. I was the the publisher and the editor, and therefore responsible. So I was able to provide some, some of my own money, which I did, believing that we would be ultimately successful. Um, we did present Canada Revenue Agency with a conundrum. If, for instance, Harper's, Mother Jones, others that are receiving charitable monies are distributing in Canada and arguably just tacking 30,000 copies onto the end of the print run to distribute in Canada. That, that um, imbalance already exists. Yeah, and why confer an advantage on them that you wouldn't give to a similar outfit here in Canada? You also agreed to a number of stipulations as to what the walrus would have to do in order to get that charitable status. 
Yeah, I wouldn't call them stipulations. I would call them creative constraints. And uh, they were all constraints that I believe, we believe, would be beneficial to the magazine. Let's quickly run through them. Well, the accent was away from personal journalism, memoirs, you know, that that kind of thing, and towards investigative uh, journalism, hard news gathering, and long form pieces that could take six months to a year uh, to write, to put Mm -hmm. together, to travel for. So it was a real commitment to the kinds of, you know, big journalism, if you will, that, you know, those other magazines, our competitors, you know, the Atlantic, Harper's, uh, you know, the New Yorker to some extent, were engaged in. Some things were absolutely excluded, you know, personality profiles and uh, those kinds of things, gratuitous humor. Humor, in fact, was allowed as long as it had uh, had educational merit. You know, so we argued, we had to argue all of these points. And I would say that that list of things was the template, the editorial template that virtually guaranteed success if we executed it well. And that, I guess justify giving it charitable status as an educational entity. That's right. And there were educational content versus advertising ratios that we had to abide by, 70-30. You know? mm-hmm. So in other words, in a 100-page issue of the magazine, 70 of those pages had to be deemed educational by an educational review committee that was part of the foundation. You told me about some of the other things, uh, the other ac- activities that the Walrus Fund was obligated to uh, engage in in order to receive, to, to maintain the charitable status. Yeah. Uh, the 70-30 ratio was one. The other was that— Well, that was that was just part of the magazine. And that, there were four activities. Yeah. There, there were four charitable activities in the language of the, the Canada Revenue Agency vis-a-vis charities. We call them activities. One was the magazine with all of its prescriptions, um, what I call creative constraints. The other was a fully paid internship program that came under— Training. Uh-huh. The idea there was uh, was to provide a living wage, you know, two thousand dollars a month for four editorial interns, six months each, and one art intern, also six months, so that we could draw people from across Canada, draw young people from across Canada, not be restricted to people who lived in Toronto. You know, so you have to pay people right. <laughs> properly. That's and also, a radical idea at the time. Yeah, you know, this is all part of Maybe our thinking. Still. But, but uh, you know, so that was one. And then Bookshelf was another. What was Bookshelf? Bookshelf was something that I started prior to the Walrus that was an event held annually in 12 different Canadian cities for 100 uh, high school English and history teachers at each event. And there would be four authors, and they would give readings. There would be a, a host and a band and this kind of thing. They would get, it's supposed to be a good night out for teachers, and they would give readings. And then every teacher present would leave that evening with a box of 20 books, so 2,000 books an evening that would be given to deserving graduating high school English and history students. So the idea was to build personal libraries for students. Right. And the final uh, activity? The final thing was, you know, public policy conferences on matters, you know, critically important matters of public interest and public policy. Those are the four activities. Yeah. So it sounds like everything is kind of going according to plan at this point because you put in, uh, I think, $5 million was the, the publicized amount that got the magazine off the ground to last the first five years. Then the charitable status comes in right around then. We didn't actually receive charitable status until October 2005. We had been publishing for 
two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah, about that. Yeah. But you had you had seed money to float it uh, to that point. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, well, we were struggling. Let okay. me tell you, it was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we were in arrears all uh-huh. over the map. Had we not received charitable status when we did, there was a serious possibility that we would have had to fold. That you would have burned through the yeah. money that you were willing, that your, you yeah, your family were willing a, to put in. There, and there's an argument. I mean, it, it's a conundrum. I mean, I do respect the Canada Revenue Agency's position here, but there, at one point, I did believe that they might be trying to just to delay us out of existence. Okay, so you received the charitable status, which could, couldn't have come uh, a moment too soon. That's right, and. Though you're in dire financial shape, you're looking very healthy subscription-wise at this point. Yeah, it was going very well in terms of in terms of real circulation. So between a traditional magazine model of selling ads against that circulation and selling the magazines themselves and the ability to solicit charitable donation, uh, there is a path to sustainability. The newsstand numbers were were terrific, and the insert card responses were high. You know, the renewal rates were very high. Uh, so it looked good for the advertising department, finally. I mean, in the first few years, it's going to be murder. I mean, some magazines just give away ads, you know, to start, just so they, they look like a magazine. <laughs> and you didn't you know? do that? No, we didn't. Uh-huh. A lot of stuff is in place, but as you say, things were looking dire. You're in arrears. By your own description, you say the magazine was in a death spiral. By the time Shelley Ambrose comes aboard as publisher— the future is uncertain, and, and uh, you know you, you, you've been critical of your own performance as publisher. Yeah, I should say, as a condition of charitable status, which we got in in October two thousand and five, I stepped down from all management positions, publishing positions, all boards of directors, and and became a simple employee, just the editor of the magazine. Because it's a conflict for your family to be making charitable donations to this magazine that you hold all these positions at? Yeah. So I became just the editor of the magazine at that that point in the fall of 2005. Were you happy to uh, abandon it? I was. I was relieved, you know, because, you know, (laughs) I said working 16, 18 hours a day pretty much. and, And... and, uh, yeah, I was relieved. And so the, the job of running the thing, of fundraising, of, uh, you know, talking to the ad people and all of that, suddenly that was off my table. And I was grateful for that. And you could just focus on editorial. Yeah. Sounds nice, actually. Yeah. yeah. And then after some missteps, Shelley Ambrose comes aboard as publisher. In the, in the fall of 2006. Uh-huh. Yeah. How are things looking then in terms of circulation, the magazine itself? Uh, that was in our very best period. What happened to circulation after Shelley Ambrose came aboard? I think it started to go down. How drastically? By the fall of 2009, uh, subscribers and newsstand buyers was down around 35,000. Watching what happened when Shelley Ambrose came aboard, it felt like her focus was on creating something that was very a modern conception of what a magazine should be. And we look at, you know, how the New Yorker rebranded itself and became this larger thing than just the magazine. They had all these events around New York and they could sell sponsorships against that. It felt like it was not simply about going for donations from organizations. It was about sort of building out walrus television, walrus talks, all these different things that maybe the focus wasn't on the magazine itself, as, as the financial engine. That may well be true. I don't know. I mean, I left in the summer of 2008. And why? Uh, it was very difficult, a very difficult work environment quite suddenly. And a good number of people who I thought were critically important. I mean, I, the, the magazine, 
the magazine's success really rests with people like Marnie Jackson and Nora Underwood and Daniel Baird and others. And, uh, you know, Marnie and Nora took a leave and, and um, I was just getting uh, more and more concerned about the state of the office and, and uh, the, the kind of, uh, I don't know, it was a fairly toxic work environment. I don't think Shelley was pleased with me, uh, you know, um, and um, it was, I just had had enough. I couldn't do it anymore. What about editorially? Was anything changing at the magazine? Well, I, I think it has changed substantially. What I hear anecdotally is that the progressive left of center a reader, you know, that was our absolute bedrock, um, you know, has sort of abandoned the magazine now, uh, and and because it 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 uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know. Take the current issue on the newsstand right now; it's it's a double issue. It's sixty six pages. Uh, there are arguably five pieces of personal journalism in it. Um, there's not a lot of meat there. What they're experiencing is is just how hard it is. Uh, to put out a really good magazine, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's actually quite quite easy to put out an average magazine. <laughs> it's very difficult to put out a a hard one, a, a really good one. A shift towards more light reading may be one explanation, but one thing that I've explored on this show before is that we suddenly see a lot of sponsorship uh, ad pages, events that are tied to Enbridge, that are tied to the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. And that seems to uh, increase, and I think that there are, they are donors as well. So there's sort of all sorts of ways that money is coming in from the petroleum industry into the walrus. And as that is happening, the politics of the magazine seem to be shifting as well. Well, many people have made that observation that the magazine is the extreme voice. Will say it's shilling for <laughs> for corporate Canada. The criticism has been that rather than hold wealth and power to account, it seems to have gotten in bed with wealth and power. Were you ever privy? I mean, you left at a certain point before some of this stuff happened, but were you ever privy to editorial interference where the publisher, maybe on behalf of some of the money that was coming in, some of these interests was influencing editorial? Well, there there was a piece. It was <laughs> sort of, I was asked to, at one point, we were doing a piece on, uh, or an issue devoted to cities, and I was asked, you know, to devote space to personality profiles of the wives of Canadian mayors. <laughs> we didn't do that, but, I, you know, I thought to myself, Jesus, what is this coming to? And uh, and at one point, a guy named Bruce Livesey wrote a piece on income inequality, and, and a letter to the editor came in from some grandee of the one percent, <laughs> highly critical of the piece, uh-huh. you know, and, 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 my, and, and, you know, I was actually told not to run editorial like that again. You know, my response to Told it, by who? By the publisher. By Shelley uh, Ambrose. Yes. My response to the le- this letter to the editor was, well, the piece has obviously done a good job. <laughs> so, uh, you know. We're in the realm of opinion here, and, and uh, I think we can speak a bit more concretely than, you know, did the politics of the magazine shift? I mean, that happens naturally without interference. It's hard to really... Uh, take account for this, but it is easy to take account for those four activities. Tell me a little bit about how 
those four activities that you described the walrus was obligated to carry out in order to maintain its charitable status, is that like a legal requirement? I believe so. Um, this is how it was put to me, that these are uh, – this is the charitable status contract. This is what the foundation is about and these are activities that you are obliged to offer and execute uh, on an annual basis. Whose uh, responsibility is it to ensure well, that that – Ultimately, the executive director of the foundation, publisher of the magazine, and the board of directors. And, and to your knowledge, Shelley Ambrose is responsible for implementing those four activities. Yeah. I mean, um, Alan Gregg, then the, the chair of the board, asked me to write Shelley's um, employment contract. And, of course, item number one is to uphold uh, the terms and conditions, all of them, of the charitable status agreement. Okay, so the first one was the 70-30 split, no personal journalism. Well, that's uh, all part of the magazine, yeah. Yeah, that number one about what the magazine should, what the long, long form investigations, mm -hmm. is, is that being upheld? I don't believe it is, in, in my, my personal opinion. I, I was thunderstruck, actually, in the spring of 2007. I have a board meeting and I'm told that the paid internship program has been canceled. Uh-huh. And, you know, of course, I said, well, one, I, I think it's, that's against the law. And two, it's certainly in direct violation of the charitable status agreements. I, I just don't see how you can do this. What do they say? And, um, well, I was told that the, it was the industry standard to not pay interns. I said, well, you know. You were whole, both right. The whole point of this thing is that we thought the industry was awful. <laughs> so right. we were doing things differently. It was you the know? industry standard and last year the, the, the Ministry well, of Labor cracked down on the Walrus yeah, and other magazines. I don't know that it was the industry standard. I mean, it was, you know, it was the practice at St. Joseph's Media, right. you know. Um, it was common, I for, guess. for instance. Uh, you know, anyway, it didn't make sense to me at all um, and it was quite upsetting. And then the next month, uh, I might have these reversed. Maybe Bookshelf was canceled first and the internship program second. I can't remember. But the next month, Bookshelf was canceled. Um, and there's no The high school literacy program. Yeah. There's no warning about this. And, you know, again, I raised the same objection that this strikes me as in direct violation of the charitable status agreement. And there was a board member I, you know, I, who I knew, and I, I, I said this, and his response was, what charitable status agreement? So there's a guy sitting on the board who hasn't read the charitable status agreement. I said, well, actually, as a board member, you're a steward of the charitable status agreement. They're sort of on the hook, aren't so they? There's liability I, I, there. I, I, well, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I, I really can't comment on all of that. But Where I, is this charitable status agreement? Because I can't find it on the Walrus's own website. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know why. Um, I'm perhaps, uh, you know, access to information or get it from CRA or whatever. But, uh, you know, those two core programs were suddenly gone. We reported on the work atmosphere issue and, and uh, you were not the only one. We, I, think we had, uh, I think we had eight sources talking about a toxic work atmosphere and workplace abuse and Shelley Ambrose came up in, in, in those conversations as well. Talk about these uh, vacations that she took and the way that the staff was treated with reference to that. Well, it was very difficult. I mean, um, you know, a lot of work to do always. And, um, yeah, it happened to be the case that um, she took three foreign vacations in a matter of a couple of months. And then, uh, I don't know, apparently someone took a 
a day off uh, with the flu and we got we got blasted for <laughs> entire staff got blasted for abusing sick sick day privileges uh-huh. you know so it's just a bit rich you know so after i left i kept getting phone calls and kept getting emails from countless number of people you know um uh, who have been fired or uh, who felt they had to quit, or in some cases, in many cases, they needed a letter of reference and uh-huh. couldn't, couldn't get them from the, their former employer. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so many. Uh, it was just staggering. And, you know, and I don't know if this has just persisted all these years, but I mean, it was evidence in plain sight, and you couldn't not know it. And I just wondered why there was no board intervention. Without intervention, you're condoning this behavior. I've been told in one way or another on both the editorial or creative side and foundation side, you know, 18 people have left in 12 months, either left or been fired. I read your your, your last piece, uh, you know, this business about Kyle Wyatt. And, uh, you know, I think you have to put that in the context of so many people yeah. in one way or another being fired forced to quit or being fired. You know, my sense actually about Kyle is that he was put in an untenable position of having to, you know, do so much, you know, for so long just to get the magazine out. Uh, You you know, so I don't don't know. I don't know how people are being treated, but, you know, I I just got – I mean, just coming at me. I didn't solicit any of this stuff. Just coming at me constantly and started – People started calling me who I didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the so, last time, if this was the last time in December 2009 when you went in to meet with uh, uh, a Chalkers uh, Foundation meeting. Oh, no. It was, at a, it was at a Chalkers board member's house. Uh-huh. And uh, my father asked me to attend, and so I did, and representatives from the – Walrus were there, four of them, uh, Shelley Ambrose, John McFarlane, Alan Gregg, and Mary Cranston, as I recall. You know, and, and a question was asked about circulation, more specifically, well, asked about the fall newsstand sale. And I just, I knew because I had access to the Distacor numbers and newsstand and the Cornerstone numbers from the subscription file that um, the newsstand numbers were disastrous. Um, the, the the fall off had been catastrophic. And yet we were told that the November issue was on schedule for being the best ever and told that the hard circulation was 60,000 when it was 35,000. And uh-huh. I, th- I thought to myself, you know, like, wow, this is a bit of a sham and a bit of a PR exercise. You wrote me a note about this. You said that there was no mention from the publisher about staff departures, a case before the Ontario Human Rights Commission, Mm -hmm. and that uh, subscriptions had shed 10,000 subscribers. Yeah, nearly in that year, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a PR exercise. And, uh, you, you know, this is a – it's it's really interesting. I mean, at schools of journalism, they teach journalism from 10 to 11. And then they teach PR, which is journalism's evil doppelganger from 11 to 12. It's no wonder they, they, the kids are sometimes confused. It shouldn't be a PR exercise. What they should have said was – 2009 has been a really tough year for us in terms of circulation. Our newsstand sale is uh, almost cut in half. Uh, We've shed a lot of subscribers, but we're going to try to do better. 
you know, I think when when these kinds of things, are, when you're faced with this kind of real hard evidence, you just have to take the bull by the horns and and address it and say, okay, well, what did they do? You know, in 2006, for instance, that that led to such success in terms of circulation. Instead, what they I think what they did is in 2010. They started selling subscriptions. I got three offers myself at radically discounted prices. Uh-huh. And I, I just think that that's a fool's errand. You know? A lot of magazines, I think, have been engaged in this sort of giving it away in yeah, order to maintain yeah. or at least stem the blood flow. I mean, giving it away is a form of controlled circulation. It's anything – it's the exact opposite of paid circulation. Yeah. You have to address the issue. If you're facing a, a significant circulation decline, you have to address the issue and look at the best practice and try to emulate those best practices. Yeah. You can't be too proud about it. It's a bru- it's very very hard. We're going to ask I mean these are serious serious charges. Some of this is about a shift in editorial tone and a different vision, but some of this is abandoning obligations under the charitable status agreement might be a, a legal violation, right? I just don't know. I mean, I, I, I just I, I just don't know. I, but you I, do know, you are saying that Shelley Ambrose stood before the Chalkers Foundation and misrepresented. I would say that that is accurate. So I don't know if we're going to get comment from her. I, I, I would love to have her present her side of this. Uh, she declined to in, in detail the last time we were put on the wall. I, I, I hope that maybe she won't re- reconsider this time. So I, I can't imagine what her response to that would be. But I can kind of conceive of kind of a counter-narrative to what you're saying, some of which is actually in line with what you're saying. There's been criticism from the start. I can kind of piece together through what was said back then, some of the critics, be it Robert Fulford or what was said when you left, Douglas Bell in Toronto Life. You have lofty ambitions, but you and David Berlin, two heirs to – millions of dollars who did who had more ambition and more bravado in entering publishing than you had publishing experience. And that uh, Douglas Bell, when you got the charitable foundation called the Walrus, part fundraising foundation, part subsidy slut, <laughs> um, for the defense that this magazine wins so many gold awards, a lot of people say, well, that well, the Walrus has always been more interested in winning awards than it has been in being a successful magazine. Lynn Cunningham uh, sort of mocked the stories as a triple S searing social significance journalism. <laughs> and I think that the, you know, uh, you'll excuse my rudeness. I think that the, the, the counter narrative would be that this was a dilettante's project that was basically being run into the ground. And if Shelley Ambrose hadn't come and gotten aggressive about shedding some of these charitable activities, shedding some of this political stuff and going after who is going to pay the bills and modernizing the whole platform, that that was necessary. And that's why there still is a walrus. And the only way to run a magazine like that is to demand a ton from your employees and that many of the things that they got lambasted or even you know ran into legal trouble for were things that other people were doing and they're just rolling with the punches like everybody else and trying to make a go of it. What do you think? I have at it. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think I think we were doing a, a very good and purposeful thing, and and um, yeah, there was high principle involved, and um, we were true believers, no question about it. Holding true to those principles is important. Following up on what our charitable obligations uh, were is important to me. Uh, always was. I think 
we proved that it could um, it could actually fly. Some people, you know, wanted to take shots at us. No, no problem. <laughs> you know, you got to be big about these things. Uh, there is a lot of petty jealousy in media in general. We did what we we set out to do. It was hard, but uh, you know, I think the empirical evidence is there that we did a pretty good run. How do you feel? Like this is one of the you know, if not the singular. This is your contribution, and it lives. This is what you brought to the Canadian media, to the Canadian conversation, the walrus. And the magazine that was envisioned as a voice of the intellectual, progressive, thinking Canadian uh, is a magazine that has partnerships with the oil sands extensively, that uh, politically has really a very different perspective than it once did. Perhaps, I don't know. My name is not on the masthead for that reason. Yeah. Um, I do think there was a significant abandonment. The irony of a magazine that is championing and thinking about progressive left issues being found in violation of its own employees, unpaid labor in violation of the Ontario Labor Code, and fined on that basis. I mean, that's rich. I mean, it's a little... You know, you 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 can laugh if you don't cry at that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I did my thing. I think I made a valuable contribution. I think it's taken a significantly different turn. I personally don't have anything to do with it anymore. As a person of letters living in Canada, surveying the scene as you did when you launched this not so long ago, how does it look now? I mean, if there were, if there was no Harper's or New Yorker in Canada then, and there's even less so now. Saturday Night is dead. I mean, it's, it died and then died and then died again. Uh, there were a number of other magazines with similar ambitions that aren't with us anymore. And you could look at something like Hazlitt, perhaps. There have been a couple of attempts to, to kind of move into that space online. Do you feel like we're in better or worse shape in terms of in-depth – Journalism, uh, thinking persons, written media. Yeah, I don't want to sound coy, but a friend did recently say, well, asking the same question about the the universe, Canadian media universe, and he said, geez, looks like we need a walrus circa 2006. <laughs> so, you know, that's that was his response. Um, you know, and I think it, that has some validity to it. Thank you very much for talking with me today. No trouble. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Hey, guys. This is Jesse. I'm back in the studio uh, on my own. It's a few days after the interview with Ken, and um, I've come back into the studio a few hours before we're scheduled to post this episode because I, I feel like it's important to say a couple of things. Uh, I've been looking at the documents that Ken shared with us that are on the website right now. I've been writing the article that is accompanying this podcast that should be live on the website as you uh, listen to this. And it's just increasingly clear that we don't have the full story here, that there is another side to this story. It's hard to believe that the walrus has been in violation of very specific rules that it has with the CRA for the last 10 years 
and have done nothing about it. So it's very possible that they have somehow updated the terms of their obligations with the CRA. Ken Alexander can only really speak to the time when he was at the Walrus. And, and you know, he does say that at that time he would have been uh, familiar with any changes to the CRA obligations and, and he felt that they were in violation of them. But that doesn't really tell us anything about all the time that's happened since. So we really need to hear from the Walrus on this. We really need to know because beyond what Ken said, if you read the documents, there's other programs listed in the original documents, not things that they canceled, but things that they never even did, like a, like a $10,000 annual nonfiction book prize they were supposed to give away and a university student essay prize that was supposed to happen every year. I mean, this stuff just never happened. And the fact that that is in their foundational documents and was never done, I have to imagine, did the board know about that? Was there some internal conversation and how much of this did the CRA agree to? We need to know from the walrus. I spent some time on the phone with some friendly people at the Canadian Revenue Agency trying to get to the bottom of this. They were not able to tell me this information on the phone, but they're going to be mailing us uh, some some stuff, all of the walrus's public documents. However, it's unclear exactly what that documentation is going to tell us, and it's also unclear when it's going to arrive. So I can't really fathom why if the walrus has changed their terms of the CRA or if they have a totally different interpretation of what their obligations are, why they wouldn't tell us that uh, when we ask them repeatedly. Maybe they'll tell us now that this is published. Maybe they will say so on their own platform. Either way, we will let you know once that information comes to us, either through the walrus or through the Canadian Revenue Agency. That was your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. You can email me whenever you like at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. Our website is at canadalandshow.com and our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday and the next episode of Shortcuts will go online by Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like Canada Land, it may interest you to know that we are 99.256% of the way to our next new podcast. That is an estimated 18 supporters away from making the best arts and culture show in Canada. So if you like Canada Land, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.